and the Canadians are holding him. Degrasse, can he do it? Yes, he can. Gold to Canada. And after what a difficult season it's been for Degrasse, he tastes gold in the form. Hello and welcome back to the Shakeout Podcast presented by Canadian Running Magazine. As always, I'm your host, David Stahl, and on today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by one of the most innovative minds in Canadian athletic performance, Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Now, for those unfamiliar, Trent is currently coaching some of the most accomplished athletes in the country en route to the 2024 Paris Olympics. The roster of runners under his guidance includes two-time Olympian and former ShakeOut podcast guest Natasha Wodak, five-time national champion Andreas Kaffian, and Canadian record holder Gabriella Debus-Stafford. This spring, Trent is attempting to coach both Wodak and Sakafian towards the final two remaining spots on the Canadian Women's Olympic Marathon team, all while balancing this with his role as Director of Performance Solutions and Applied Sport Research at the Canadian Sport Institute. As one of Canada's leading physiologists and a true pioneer when it comes to analyzing performance, Trent was so gracious with his time to have a long-form discussion surrounding both his personal approach to coaching, but also on a much larger scale, the research he's conducted to help reshape our very perceptions of human performance. Trent is such a champion of scientific innovation, and if you talk to any of his athletes or his coworkers or his family, such an unwavering advocate for women's athletics. Of course, our interview touches on a lot of topics on tight timelines, including Olympic qualifications for several of his athletes, but we really only scratch the surface of his fascinating biography. So as always, if you enjoy the interview, please feel free to let us know and subscribe. It always helps us out a ton. But I also urge you to grab the latest copy of Canadian Running from your local drugstore, your local bookstore, subscribe to the magazine, wherever you can find it. Because Maddie Kelly wrote such an amazing feature on Trent that offers so much great insight that we just didn't have time to cover. Of course, longtime listeners to this podcast know Maddie's voice quite well. And if you've read the magazine, she has such incredible storytelling ability and brings so much out of the people that she interviews. And this feature on Trent, it really offers that tenfold. I used it for virtually all of my research leading up into this interview and there's so much in there that we just wouldn't have had time to cover on the podcast so again if you're interested in Trent's work which if you're listening to this podcast you likely will be I highly recommend you go read Maddie's feature it's so so well done otherwise you can follow us at shakeout podcast on all social platforms to catch clips and updates from the pod but for now please enjoy my chat with Dr. Trent Stanley. Trent, now your work is one of Canada's top physiology researchers. It's so fascinating. It obviously relates really naturally to your coaching. So we're going to touch on all of your work across the board. But to start right now, recording in late January, we're in the midst of an exceptionally busy time for you as a coach with several of your most notable athletes battling for Olympic qualifications. 
for those who might be unfamiliar, can you outline some of the athletes you're, you're currently working with and which major races you have circled on your calendar to focus on this spring? Yeah, obviously we're we're coming into the pointy end of the qualification period for various middle and long distance runners to be uh, to be in Paris. Um, the qualification period for the marathon is a little bit shorter. Uh, you need to have that all done and dusted by early May. Um, so two of the athletes I coach are are vying to be on that Olympic team in the marathon, and that's uh, Canadian record holder uh, Natasha Woodock, as well as uh, Andrea Sakafian has just announced that she's going to race uh, Tokyo. So uh, those two athletes definitely are uh, in the in the midst of it and in the heat of the battle and doing everything they can in probably track and field's least predictable event. Um, there's always uh, a lot of factors that need to line up for a really good marathon. Obviously, uh, I also coach Gabriella Debus stafford um, who's coming off of uh, a very long and challenging, um, and she's been open with this on social media, so I can I can talk about it, uh, osteitis pubis um, injury. Um, that that took quite a while that also had a stress fracture and she's now uh, really starting to fire on all cylinders and we've we've really got into a great rhythm of training uh, for her so she'll look to uh, continue to to build fitness build specificity be in her spikes board which she hasn't been able to do in two years mm. as we move into the spring yeah those are probably the the the, the main athletes my wife we're, we're kind of a partner she she helps coach Kate Ayers and uh, Genevieve Roland who's just had a baby and coming back from a baby as well. And then Kate just um, had something like a 15 or 17 second personal best in the 3K on the weekend uh, mm. at BU. So um, it is a busy time of the year, as you've said. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you fit it all in you and your wife as well. The, the schedule must be stacked. And like you mentioned, they're such an elite group of women Canadian distance runners and, and track runners. And we want to dive into a handful of those big names that we're going to be keeping an eye on leading into Paris. But you mentioned her at the top there, Andrea Sakafian, coming aboard to work with you. It was a big shift in the Canadian running world coming into the marathon for the first time as well this spring. What are some of the key adjustments you've made to her training going into Tokyo? Yeah, I mean, um, from the outset, uh, many, many, many years ago, like my my wife uh, was a Speed River runner, and we've known Andrea since she was at at Guelph. I'm, I was a, did a PhD at Guelph many moons ago. Andrea's uh, partner has the same had the same PhD advisor as me uh, as Guelph, and now um, is a researcher in Australia. Um, actually with someone named John Hawley and Louise Burke. And, and I collaborate with Louise Burke quite a bit. So we've known each other for many, many, many years. I know her background. I know the type of training she does, the, the type of talent that she brings to the event, being the Canadian record holder in the 10,000, as well as the half marathon. But just because you're a good 10,000 meter runner doesn't always mean you're going to translate into the marathon. That said, uh, so far, the work that we've given her. And yeah, I, I really do feel like um, she's built for the marathon. She's excited about the new challenge. And it it is a tricky proposition. I, I think, you know, she kind of graduated from the 5000 for sure. When you look at the selection criteria for the 10k, the number of athletes that are capable of qualifying in the 10k off the top of my head is 27. It's a very small event. And so she probably need to run 30 seconds faster than her Canadian record to make the 10k. 
And so when she was starting to resonate with the volume really well, and I, I slipped in a little marathon workout and didn't really tell her actually, and she, she nailed it. And I remember I called her and I said, Hey, uh, let's play a word association game. And she's like, what, what do you mean? And I said, um, uh, I'm going to say a word and you got to tell me how it makes you feel. And I just said marathon and she laughed and she's like, I knew you were going to say that word. So yeah, there, there's some risk with that decision too, like to be a first time marathoner and to go all in and just try and run standard. There, there's risk with that, but there's also risk in trying to run a 30 second PB in the 10 K. Yeah. And so with 70 slots open auto stand or slots open in the marathon, um, I, uh, I think the, the probabilities are, are, are higher there. And, um, she's open with her training in Strava and like yesterday, you know, crushed a 37 and a half kilometer run at pretty high quality. So she's, she's, she's doing a great job and, uh, we will have everything in place for her to feel confident to perform, uh, in Tokyo on, on March 3rd. Yeah, I've been keeping a pretty close eye on her workouts. They seem to be going really well. But like you mentioned, it is, you know, to go into any somewhat unknown endeavor is such a risk, especially at such an elite level. You said she had a feeling that you were going to say that on the phone call. What was her initial reaction or excitement level when it came to the marathon? Was there a little bit of that tentative fear of, okay, you know, this is a, a big adjustment? Yeah, I, I would... I don't want to put words in any athlete's mouth, obviously, but I would say that there was um, uh, excitement for sure on something new and a new challenge. Uh, she had always talked about doing the marathon and had come through a, a real string of really tough injuries and a surgery on her knees as well. Uh, in fact, her first real run back after her surgery was a year ago yesterday. Mm. And exactly one year later, she had the longest run of her life at 37 and a half kilometers. I, I didn't know that beforehand when we had programmed that session. So that, I, I was kind of like, well, oh, it's meant to be then, you know, like that's just, that's, that's unbelievable. Exactly a year later. Um, and, but, but, you know, she's been around the block. She knows the sport really well. Um, and so she, there is some apprehension. There is some cautious optimism because it, it is the marathon and, not only that, like um, there's been a lot of changes. She has been used to being in a large training group, which is not the situation right now. She's uh, We've decided to keep her in Australia for uh, stability and weather purposes. She's got uh, her partner's an exercise physiologist, so he helps monitor things for me there, which is awesome. She does have a, a, some guys that can help her out with some sessions, but it's only periodic. She switched coaches. Uh, she's independent and she's doing a new marathon. So there is a real leap of faith for her to say, okay, these are all new and I just got to trust the process here. And, um, when it's time, not at the start of the race, but at about 30 K to put all the chips on the table in Tokyo, that's, that's what she'll have to do. You don't want to put your chips on the table too early in a marathon. Cause that, that always ends badly. Now we had a chance to sort of chat with her when she was just, announcing the Tokyo race and she did have some quotes she seemed really sort of at peace with the thought of training remotely by being coached with you and then obviously you know being able to settle in her life you know in Australia and, and have that flow do you think she's is there something about her personality that's attuned to a lot of that solo training because the marathon is such a grind I'm sure that's not for everyone yeah like I I'm sure she would agree I we, we wish we could get more bodies around her for some of the key sessions, but it's just not always possible. And on the weekends, it's more possible. But 
for marathon builds, I tend to work on a 10 to 12 day cycle, usually, usually 10, not seven days. And so mm. the key workouts aren't always on the weekend, like, like yesterday, for example, in this, this long run with, with quality in it. So yeah, that's, that's challenging. There has been a few times where, um, She'll get a good weather day in Melbourne because remember it's summer there. So there's some hot days and it's quite windy in Melbourne off the ocean and they'll, they'll get a good weather day and she'll have a group. And she's just like, Oh my, like that felt so easy. I felt sublime. Um, and, and certainly the average weather that she'll get in Tokyo will be substantially better than the average weather she needs to prepare in, in Melbourne. Um, but I joke with her. She's like warm blooded. I, I, I'm like, oh, you're like half a lizard. You know, you like the the hot sun. You want to be in the sun. I, I, I really do think like trying to prepare for Tokyo in the in the the rainy season of Victoria would would be less ideal than the warmer and windy weather in Melbourne. So, so we look at that all holistically. Like uh, I'm not, you know, thou shalt move here always. Uh, it's it's really rare that I'll remote coach. That 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 being said, it. I have a very detailed online integrated training log that I, I just require. And it's mm -hmm. every athlete has a team's channel. Their team is on the teams. They can interact. We we track things on there. There's a message board on there. We have files on there. And then we have an integrated um, Excel spreadsheet that's quite extensive that I, I just, yeah, I, I know exactly where the athletes are at, what they're doing, how they're reacting, how they're feeling, what their splits are. Yes, it's always better in person, but I, I think we do a pretty good job remote. Mm, and you mentioned a couple of factors I'm sure played into the decision, but why Tokyo? Why did that seem like the right fit for Andrea? Yeah, so when we were made the decision to pursue the marathon, which was before Christmas, we had to quickly look at where her fitness was at and the number of sessions she needed to prepare. Um, if we had a, a longer runway, I think we would have rather her try a marathon in December, like Valencia or maybe Houston in January. Um, because as I said before, the least predictable event in track and field is probably the marathon. And if things go a little bit sideways, you have time to regroup and do another, another marathon. Um, and although Andrea was quite fit coming in, um, in terms of just general fitness, she'd literally run 140 to 145 K a week, like straight for months on end, there wasn't a lot of big volume specificity in there, or, you know, a few, you know, we've touched 170 K weeks now with her. And so, yeah, it was going to take a little bit of time. So we, we looked at various options um, at that time of the year in the, the, the kind of spring, you're, you're mainly looking at European options or Japanese options as your high probability outcomes. And when you're choosing a race, you're looking at the history of the race, how fast the course is, whether your agent can get you in. Um, that's a complete pain at times, and it is a real problem with the sport that uh, there's a lot of space in a marathon at the front. I, I It does my head in that elites can't get a start bib, even if they're willing to pay their own way. That That's a problem in our sport. But then you also want to look at factors like is it a single mass start or is it a women's only start? And if it's a women's only start, uh, what does the pacing situation look like? And so Tokyo as a mass start, um, if you look back at the at the results, there's like 30 to 40 guys on any given year that run between 224 and 227. So even if the pacers go a bit off, there's there's going to be bodies around to like tag on to and run with versus something like a New York or London marathon, which are majors, but they have a women's only start, which is unique. It's great. The women get a lot of attention, but 
if you're going to run a 225 marathon, you're probably going to run 15K alone off the back end. So mm. you, you just, you're balancing out all these decisions. And then finally for Andrea, the uh, time zone shift and travel fatigue from Australia to Tokyo was like night and day exponentially better than trying to um, do a European marathon where she, she'd probably have to come into Europe two weeks early just to ground herself. So um, yeah, those are all the top level criteria that went into making a decision. There's a lot of factors and we had the chance to speak last week with Natasha on the on the podcast and I won't blow up her spot and say obviously what marathon it is but she was going through sort of the ones that were on the list that you guys were looking at and she talked about in London that women's only start that played a role and then I've had a lot of friends and peers that we've met through the magazine who are pros and elites who've tried to get into a few and you're you're mentioning it there i mean rotterdam is such a nightmare all the time for just being able to be available so there are a ton of factors that play a role now just to go back i want to touch on natasha as well but you mentioned that 10-day cycle for the amateurs or the laymans who are listening can you explain sort of how that flow works out in a 10-day cycle how it sort of differs from a seven-day cycle and is that something that you have adopted for a lot of your athletes? Yeah. So um, obviously as elite athletes, they're not constrained to a normal one week cycle, like a varsity athlete is that's in school where the meets are always on the Saturdays. And so you're, you're, you're really constrained there just by the scheduling of the university. And, and, and when you're a university coach and you're a track coach, so they're, they tend to land on a seven day cycle, which is a classic cycle. And you might do, two or three workouts a week and, and a long run on Sunday, you know, and, and just, just keep rotating um, with our elites at certain times of the year, even longer distance athletes, we may shift to a, a nine or a 10 day cycle, or, uh, meaning instead of doing three workouts in a long run in a week, they do three workouts in a long run over 10 days. So what it does is just spaces out the density a little bit and uh, allows you to really write, large aggressive workouts which is what you need to do in a marathon you need a few workouts that go north of 35k in in, in elite males and females so you know in males that's going to take you know potentially just over two hours or two hours and 15 minutes an elite female that that, that takes you know 220 to 230 two hours 20 to two hours 30 but you you, you can't two days later do another workout you know, you got to wash that out. And usually like after a long run today, she's going to have three easy days before we go back in with another session. So usually it's like really big workout, three easy days, moderate workout, two easy days, big workout. So you can see how they're, they're spread out, you know, three easy days, moderate workout. And so we'll, we'll cycle through uh, like that. And when I say big workout, that's usually one of two main approaches in the marathon. One might be a long run that has quality in it. So it could be a two and a half hour long run with a progression off the back end where the last 45 minutes gets faster and faster and faster. So the last maybe 10 minutes are at goal pace, or it could be a marathon specific session where uh, we try to mimic everything in the marathon. So breakfast coming in, only doing like an eight minute warm up or a 10 minute warm up, and then, and then getting right into marathon pace and trying to do, you know, 25 to 30 K quality at goal marathon pace. Um, uh, and then, you know, a cool down. So at, at the end of that, you're still at close to 35 K work, but it's just a, 
it's it's a different kind of structure and uh, uh those workouts have a higher percent of quality because the the vast majority of the workouts at or close to 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 the goal paces um and you build those out it's not rocket science um you're just trying to like build out the tolerance to those types of sessions and 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 place them appropriately in a in a training program so that the athlete is tired but can recover enough so that they get fit and they're uh, they're not just constantly beat beaten down Mm, just adds so much more quality, makes a lot more palatable, I'm sure, in an elite marathon build where the volume and the intensity is just at such a high level. Now, on the other side of the coin, what we've talked about with Andrea, of course, we mentioned her earlier. You also coached two-time Olympian and national record holder for the marathon, Natasha Wodak. And I'm curious how the mental side of the marathon shifts with someone who's obviously so attuned to the distance is there a little bit of like this calm factor obviously we're leading towards a bit of a time crunch now so it might be a bit different but is there just a different mentality when it comes to someone like natasha who's so used to the distance you know she natasha actually hasn't raced that many marathons she's um six or seven total uh, that said, she's made a lot of national teams and she's, you know, in her early 40s now and has a maturity ar- around her where she really grasps on to, you know, this is this is the twilight of her career. And I, I want to make sure that I have a great experience along with running fast. And so she's really grounded in that and really mature around that. You know, I, I'm sure she said and I'll say too, like. Uh, the hamstring niggle, she car- which we managed really well, but she carried it into to Houston. There's no event that is going to exploit a a small injury that like a marathon, maybe Houston on the cement. Yeah, that that was really frustrating for both of us, like really frustrating because it 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 does make things a lot more challenging this next six months to mm-hmm. to qualify and then rebuild for for Paris. That said, uh, Natasha is like an unbelievable professional just so dialed in knows what she needs to do communicates so well brings her own own ideas to the table reads her body better than most athletes do in terms of hey i think we need to push this a day you know my my 42 year old toes or my 40 you know my 40 year old body is is feeling it um and 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 so like uh even though it's a it's it, it's stressful and it's uh it, it it it's a tough situation to be in. Honestly, as far as to be a betting person, the person that can go and do this is someone like Natasha, uh, mm. just with her maturity, her experience, her the way she um absolutely nails workouts. Like it's just like she just goes in as a professional and just just nails it. And um and so I'm excited for that, and and she's excited for the challenge too. And it but it. But it is a really big challenge, you know. Um, if if we rewind, like the Budapest World Championships, it was as hot as Tokyo, and I know that we knew it might be warmish, but to be as hot as Tokyo, she ran lights out for fourteenth, like lights out. And if you analyze the top twenty of, of the Tokyo Olympics and you analyze the top twenty of Budapest, it it Budapest was a a stacked field. It it was an impressive field. And if you look at the time differential of the top 20 compared to their incoming PBs, it was a seven and a half minute slower. And if you take Tasha's time of 2.30, whatever it was, and you take seven and a half minutes off that, like, I'm really proud of the way she raced that, but we got nothing out of it. 
zero out of it in terms of qualification. She got an amazing experience though. And she said that afterwards to make another national team, to go to the training camp, to hang out with my teammates, to have my coach there, to have my parents fly to Budapest and my partner, to have that experience at a, at a certain point at 20K to actually roll into the lead for a little bit. She's like, so we got nothing out of it, but I, I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life too. And so again, she's a real maturity that she brings brings to that. Yeah, 100%. I think there's very much, again, not to speak for her, but an emphasis on quality of life as well as we sort of look towards, she said, this is going to be my last Olympics. If I'm in Paris, I want to enjoy it. Same with world champs. I want to enjoy this experience. I think, I mean, you're so right. I don't have it in front of me, whether it's six or seven marathons, but she hasn't run a billion. But I think it is that mature calloused mind that makes you think, oh my gosh, she's so attuned to this distance. Even speaking to her, she said, like you kind of echoed very bluntly, this is going to be the toughest six months of my life. If I qualify for Paris and I'm able to qualify in this spring marathon. And there's just that acceptance of, yep, I, this is what I got to do. And I'm going to sit in this space. How good has she been at, you know, managing these emotions and, and how long after Houston did you guys decide, okay, let's run it back. What was that conversation like? Cause obviously that was such a tough race to, to stomach. Yeah. And, and to be clear to the listener too, um, just cause Natasha says she wants to go and enjoy, um, the Paris Olympics as her last Olympics to be, to be a hundred percent clear. That doesn't mean she's going to be out like partying and hanging out and doing <laughs> when she says enjoy, she actually just, it means enjoy being in that just unbelievable high performance crucible with her teammates and being professional and having those experiences there. Um, just to be clear, uh, I don't coach uh, Olympic tourists. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's like rule 101. Yeah. Like, uh, I got a call quite quickly after the race from Natasha and uh, obviously there was a lot of tears and back and forth. And, um, I was up real early to, you know, do the tracking to try to watch how things were going. And, um, my wife and the kids got up like near the tail end and, and we kind of knew it was off. And yeah, that was a, that was a tough morning. I, I was pretty quiet and just like, ah, oh, man, this is a really tricky situation now to be in and have to requalify, you know, and I, I'm not on Instagram, but like uh, at, at some point later that afternoon, Natasha sent me this hilarious giphy and it was um, basically this martial arts guy getting kicked in the private parts and it was like me and Houston, like she, and I, I think Hillary said she put it on her Instagram later. And, and it was just like her partner, Alan said, you know, Hey, this is, this is kind of how it went today. You, you got, you know, you got stomped and Houston definitely tamed you. And, and, uh, I really needed that. Like when she said that at like five in the afternoon after the race, it mm. obviously we we're still sad about it, but it lifted my spirits. And I knew that she was in a good spot emotionally and uh, she had planned a trip down to uh, uh, Mexico with with Alan afterwards, which is great. And I I let things sit. I said just just go down there, shut off, and I let things sit. And I think about the next morning in the airport, she's texting me about options. What about this? What about that? I said Tash, go on holiday. Let's just let it sit a week. Uh, like three days later, oh, I've already emailed that. Da, 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 da. You know, she was already. You know, I started to do my walks just to keep my body moving. Could I try a little walk run while I'm here? You know, like just, and uh, I, we didn't have to talk about it. 
like when 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 an athlete starts sending you that i and because i've worked with her and i just know how dedicated she is i'm like all right let's go um and i know like if we don't go all in doing our very best on this it she's going to be uh it's going to haunt her the rest of her life it's going to also be over my my shoulder the rest of the life that said if she's like i don't have the emotional bandwidth for that i support her 100 percent in that decision too you know and um ultimately it's in in the athlete's hands yeah to reiterate what you said at the beginning there too i think anyone who has listened to an interview with natasha or seen her race see her approach the race where she kind of saw it getting away from her after 30k and thought i am going to grind this out through the finish line again she's not an olympic tourist by any means when we say she wants it for the experience as well she touched on it too, to be able to be there with the Melindy Elmore and look at her as a peer and a competitor and do that adventure again for what could be the last time. And you know, competitor to her heart. I don't think she has any part of her DNA that couldn't compete at the highest level um, if she were to make it to Paris. But you touched on it there. You're obviously so well versed in the physiological aspect of coaching, which we'll, of course, get into. But so many of your athletes that we've spoken to praise your ability to empathize with them following such tough races, that personal element of coaching. As someone who's so used to working with empirical data, when you first started was that element of coaching ever an adjustment or did that personal aspect of, you know, working with athletes who are going to go through heartbreak or are going to go through setbacks? Did, did that come naturally? Uh, yeah, I'm probably less scientific than most people realize when you start working with me as a coach athlete. I, I certainly use data and science to inform decisions, but not make decisions. I was also a pretty like mediocre average middle distance runner myself and went to NCAA and, and, um, and so I, I, I just remember the highs and lows of this sport. And then a, a huge piece for me was obviously my wife's 15 year running career and multiple Olympic teams and just living with her, not like a, as a partner and knowing, knowing that, especially from the female perspective, uh, from her perspective, just, the challenges and the ups and the downs of the sport. And so, so yeah, that, that it, it weighs heavily on me to try to deliver a great environment, a great training environment, but also not an environment that's overly easy. You know, we can provide everything for the athlete. And if there's no elements of um, stress and resiliency to it, it, it's, it's an overcomfortable environment too. So you're, you're trying to balance that with each athlete. So um, I'm, I mainly try to bring the resiliency and challenge in the environment through writing progressively challenging workouts, having the faith and encouragement that they can execute these audacious workouts. Even as a physiologist, when I was working really closely with athletes, if, if, if especially when things went sideways, I would always try to just reach out and give a little line. When things go well, you almost don't need to, you know, it's a, they're on, it, it, but when things go poorly and yeah, the, the, this sport, you can't hide. It's so black and white. Your numbers are out there. The times are out there. The workout times are there. You know, you can kind of float a little bit in a team sport or, or if the team doesn't do well, wow, it was like, it was the left winger's fault. It wasn't my fault. You know, here it's, it's really, it's on you and your coach and your inner circle. And, mm. and um, yeah, you gotta be really truthful to that. Yeah, that magnifying glass, it just feels like it's it's on you at all times, especially, like you said, when things aren't necessarily going according to plan. 
and sort of to, to dive into your work as a researcher a bit more, I think a really important marriage between that emphasis on empathy and also your work and what separates you from a lot of other male coaches is not only your dedication to supporting women athletes, but also understanding how best to support them from a biological and physiological performance standpoint. From your perspective in, in years past, what had the sports world been getting wrong about the biological nuances of coaching men versus women in a, in a running sense? What had we kind of been overlooking? To, to be honest, like started, uh, part of my exploration and journey into doing more and more um, women and female-based research, and I use those two words very purposely. Um, if you're doing psychosocial, emotional, gender research, you know, we, we use the word woman. If we're doing biology, physiology uh, um, research, it's, it's female. And there's gender-based differences and there's sex-based differences. So um, I will use those, uh, those pronouns and those words uh, appropriately here. But but certainly it initially was a little bit self-serving to be to be frank. Every time something came up with my wife, I would look in the literature and say, Oh, oh, there's nothing here. Where, where's where's the female researcher? Like why why can't I get an answer to why a really clear answer to why female athletes are more likely to be of low iron, you know? And so my, my wife was anemic in the 20, 2008 year and missed one Olympic trials, but but missed the team by 0.6 seconds. And um, so out of that, we've done a bunch of iron research. Or then when Hillary got pregnant, I like went to the research and like, oh, where's the, what, what should we do here? And there was like nothing. So we, you know, with Francine Derrick, uh, Dylan Wikes' uh, 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 partner, we published a paper last year on elite female uh, runners in pregnancy and what they do during training. And and so what become, became kind of like just trying to help my wife out has now become so much bigger and so much more... Um, yeah, inspiring to be a part of in terms of uh, working um, through. And obviously, I work at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. They've supported a bunch of our uh, female-specific research. Um, I also consult with the Female Athlete Program out of Harvard uh, with Kate Ackerman, doctor, um, physician Dr. Kate Ackerman, and um, and a few other female-specific projects. So, so getting back to... Um, you know, what are some of the considerations that you need to think about coaching male athletes versus female athletes? Um, first of all, there's still a whole bunch of unknowns. We just, we just don't know. And, um, and so that, that's just important to say. And just because we don't know it, there, there could be sex-based or gender-based differences, but there might not be either, you know, in some instances, uh, I think you can approach coaching a female very similar to a man. One of the big things that I think we need to correct for though is mileage, not mileage in terms of minutes, I believe, but mileage in terms of kilometers and miles. Because men run on average 10 to 15% faster. And so a, a 100 mile week will result in about 15 to 20,000 more steps for a woman than a man. And people don't always think about this. But a 700 minute week is the same for men and women. So I program in minutes. It's, it's approximately the same number of steps and the same load and the same amount of, it is the same amount of time. Yes, the men in a 700 minute week will be over, you know, approaching hundred miles a week and the women might be at 85, or whatever, right? So um, yeah, just uh, that, that's one major thing. I think it's also important to recognize that on average, on average, not maybe the individual in front of you, but on average, it is shown that women have more slow twitch muscle fibers than men. 
They are more aerobically dominant on average than men. They appear to have greater fatigue resistance in longer events than men. And that's why like at ultra marathon distances, the percent difference in world record is, you know, only six or 7% versus 10 to 12% in the track and field events. We know women pace different than men. Uh, women actually are better pacers. They are more realistic and better in tune with their pace judgment and anticipation of their effort than, than, than men. And so the, these are all things that I, uh, I consider. Obviously, uh, uh, women as well, uh, there, there, there is a genetic disposition. Women are at a higher degree or likelihood of having elements of body dysmorphia, eating disorders or disordered eating. There's higher prevalences of, of REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. Uh, female bone mineral density is, is less than males. So there's higher risk of bone stress injuries, formerly known as stress fractures. So understanding that risk profile as well in the background and being on top of that and the differences in risk symptoms for males and females is, is, is important as well. So, yeah. Uh, but otherwise I, I treat all the women just like I would treat the men. We're high performance athletes. We, we're going to work really bloody hard and, you know, we're they just, there's some slight differences in, in some of the physiology that presents and in other instances, there's some, um, and those, some of those differences are better for women than men. So, mm. so that's it in a nutshell. And those are average comments I make, obviously the individual athlete in front of you, like, for example, I coach Melissa Bishop. She is not slow twitch dominant. She runs like maxes out at 50 kilometers a week, but has run a 404, 1500 and she is fast. Right. So totally different training program than an Andrea Sakafian. Mm. Oh yeah. There are nuances in there, of course. And, and you have to account for the individuality of athletes, but I think so many fascinating tidbits in there for people who I hope are, you know, just taking some jot notes and then looking more into some of the nuggets that you drop there as well. I'm always curious with people such as yourself or an Alex Hutchinson, people who are always so tapped into research that's right around the corner as to what you're most fascinated uh, looking into right now. You talked about a study that you guys had looked into of, of women pregnancy with when it comes to athletes. When you're looking at your research and what you're most interested in, what does that look like in 2024 so far? I think it's important to recognize that there's a a span of research that collectively uh, all together allows for consensus or decisions to be made. And so that span of research might range from like really intricate cell culture to rats and rodents <laughs> to general population people through to like university trained athletes through all the way to elite world-class athletes. And then the research design, whether or not it's just a, an observational study in an elite athlete versus like, you know, a placebo randomized controlled design with a, you know, double blind, mm -hmm. you, you got you to look at that whole spectrum and, and appreciate it. Now, I work mainly in human research on the elite side of things, or I do work only in human research on the elite side of things, um, although a bunch of my studies are just are, are in university uh, participants which are great as well. The, the studies and the research I get most excited about are the ones that we can do and the publications in the elite of the very, very elite athletes 
they are sometimes the hardest ones to publish, unfortunately, because uh, obviously you go through peer review, it's sent out the paper and then maybe some academic around the world blind reviews it and either rejects it or accepts it, or usually it's a lot of revisions back and forth before it's published. Um, they don't always appreciate the challenges of recruiting an ultra elite population. So they say things mm. like, oh, well, why didn't you put everyone on the same training program? Well, that's not going to happen. Oh, well, how come you don't have a control group here? Uh, that's not going to happen. There's no way a, a coach is like, you know, if we did an altitude study and, oh, hey, Athletics Canada, I have a great idea. Let, let's leave 15 of your athletes at sea level on your training camp. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. So th there are challenges with that, those studies. And so, for example, the, the pregnancy study, um, you know, we had north of uh, 40 women. It took eight years, nine years to collect that data because the women that were in that study were all fast enough um, to make the U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon. That was the cutoff to get into the study or equivalently in the other events with IAAF points. So um, off the top of my head, that'd be like a, 1,050 IAAF points. I got very solid performance. Well, you got to wait around to use your network for women to get pregnant, to then recruit into the study, to then track them for a year and a half. Like that, that was a huge project and took many, many years. And But then the cool thing out of it is, is we have all the world athletics performance data. So we could mathematically and statistically model performances before and after pregnancy and and show that any any female who intended to come back to world elite performance raced just as well two years after pregnancy as pre-pregnancy. And uh, on straight up, more women ran faster post-pregnancy. It wasn't statistical, but more did than, than pre-pregnancy. Um, or we did a great project of, uh, you know, in 2016 on the Olympic year where we looked at relative energy deficiency in sport um, up in Flagstaff. Um, mm. uh, that had 59 elite athletes and off the top of my head, 26% um, of them made the Rio Olympic team that year. Like that's, mm. that's how elite of a cohort we had and super proud of that study too, just because um, again, we were doing work directly in, in a very elite population. And you touched on some of them as well there, but I'm curious, you've had a, a, so much work that's really molded how we look at athletes this pregnancy study in particular, that some of the insights that you touched on there, that's just going to change the way we perceive women's elite athletes, not just in track and field and running, but, you know, in, in a lot of elite categories. And so therefore your career is defined by a lot of these groundbreaking discoveries and initiatives. When you look back on your career thus far, is there particular research that you're proud of? Maybe it, I'm, referencing maybe your altitude studies which have made a big impact or done a lot of work in hyperoxia is there yeah particular realms where you go oh i i'm really happy with how this turned out or i think these insights are, are gonna put a big fingerprint on elite sports yeah you 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 nailed the essence of the the very remote times in a research career where you're involved with something that actually changes practice in the field. And, and I, I, for me, that, that is really, yeah, is really humbling and really, uh, really, really satisfying. And, and maybe I'll answer this. Yeah. We all suffer from recency bias, but um, just recently there's a brand new 2023 international Olympic committee consensus on REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, 
And that was a four year project behind the scenes. Uh, we all got flown or not all like there's 15 of us around the world that got flown into Lausanne. We met for two and a half, three days, about a year and a half ago. We all worked on our papers and uh, I was tasked with helping lead with an amazing group of co-authors, the new diagnostic tool for REDS. So how do you actually, how do physicians, what do they measure? What are the values and what are the cutoffs to actually diagnose someone um, with REDS? And we, we did a traffic light approach because it's, it's not like a light switch that just goes on and off. There's severity to it. So, you, you know, if you're green, you don't have reds and then there's yellow, orange and red traffic lights for the risk and severity of reds. You know, if you've had one small stress fracture a few years ago, you're yellow. But if you've had like four stress fractures in two years, your testosterone's tanked, you, you've done an eating disorder questionnaire and you risk, your, your risk is really high there, your thyroid uh, hormone is tanked. Well, guess what? You're going to be a red light and, and you, you need to be probably taken out of training and, and put into an eating disorder type situation. So that paper and that series of nine papers that were published in a special edition by the IOC uh, is something I'm, I'm really, really proud of. And I'll highlight that uh, we, we had a grad student here, a postdoctorate fellow, Dr. Ida Haikura, who helped with the research for that paper for three years. Uh, so we're going to soon publish a paper that is 200 athletes to support this new diagnosis tool, it's, uh, it's in review right now. Um, so super proud of that. And, and just proud that that diagnostic tool is, is going to change practice. It's, it's the way that the world and the physicians will, um, will approach us and, and proud that the Canadian Sport Institute could help drive that because, you know, on that publication, there's, there's myself, we got Liz Johnson, the lead of physiology. We have Dr. Aikita Haikura, obviously Dr. Patty McCluskey, who's the physician for the Institute, as well as the head physician for Athletics Canada. And then um, our fearless leader at the IOC is Dr. Margo Mountjoy, who's based originally out of Guelph, but out of McMaster. Um, and so there, there's a huge Canadian content on that piece too, that I'm, I'm really proud of. Wow. Even from a national standpoint, there's so much Canadian representation as well. Yeah. Something to be proud of in and of itself. Now we've touched on it to, to close this out, Trent. This is such an exciting year for you, not only with so many of your athletes vying for Olympic representation, but for Canadian athletics in general with your work. So I'm curious to, to close us out. What are you most excited for when we look down towards Paris or your work with uh, the Canadian Sport Institute, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so privileged to work at such an amazing institute here and in Victoria, Vancouver and Whistler. We have a staff of 80 and obviously we don't really have winter in Victoria. So on summer sport Olympic quads, like, like coming up, or, although it's only three years ago to, uh, to Tokyo, the whole Institute just comes on board and is so engaged with doing everything we can to turn over every rock to make sure every athlete is, is, is prepared as, as best as they can. And we don't really have a post interview, but at least our mantra at the Institute is if we could ask every athlete we work with two questions, it would be, you know, on a scale of one to 10, um, did we do everything possible to help you perform your best? Yes. You know, a scale of one to 10. And did you feel cared for? And so I, I really hope, and I know we, we as an Institute will, will drive that. And, you know, my colleagues are working in rowing or triathlon and swimming and all the other, you know, all the other sports, uh, 
one of our employees works in pro cycling with Israel Premier Tech. So I work closely with, with decently closely with them too. And obviously we have a bunch of really good Canadians that'll be uh, in the men's road race uh, mm-hmm. on that team, like Mike Woods. Um, so it's just, it, it's always an exciting time every time the Olympics come around. And it's hard for me to like pick two or three things other than just, just to say I'm, I'm, I'm proud to represent a great organization, a uh, high performance organization. Mm, amazing. And, and, People can find your work, of course, through the Canadian Sport Institute and, uh, of course, following you on social media as well. We'll give a little bit of insight into your research, your writing, your coaching, et cetera. Trent, I know you're a busy, busy man, so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and and best of luck with both your work and your athletes in the year ahead. Thanks for having me on. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you so, so much for tuning into my conversation with Trent. As per usual, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us at ShakeOut Podcast on social media for clips and updates from the pod. It helps us out a ton. Otherwise, stay tuned for what Trent and his athletes have in store this spring and stay locked onto the Canadian Sport Institute for more insight from Trent's work, his research, Like we touched on throughout the interview, it's so innovative and it just peeks around the corner as to what's possible when it comes to athletic performance. So if you're into this podcast, I assume you're going to be into what he touches on within his work. We'll be locked on following his research just the same as you. In the meantime, as always, happy running and we'll see you next time. It's their northerly neighbours, and somehow, after an awful year of injury...